Chapter Forty One of Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms by Haywood Brune. What Shakespeare Missed. Next to putting a gold crown upon a man's head and announcing, I create you emperor, no evil genius could serve him a worse turn than by giving him a blue pencil and saying, Now you're a censor. Unfortunately, mankind loves to possess the power of sitting in judgment. In some respects, the life of a censor is more exhilarating than that of an emperor. The best the emperor can do is to snip off the heads of men and women who are mere mortals. The censor can decapitate ideas, which but for him might have lived forever. Think, for instance, of the extraordinary thrill which might come to a matter-of-fact individual living today in the city of Philadelphia if he happened to be the censor to whom the moving picture version of Macbeth was submitted. His eye would light upon the subtitle, Give Me the Dagger, and turning to the volume called Rules and Standards, he would find, among the prohibitions, pictures which deal at length with gunplay and the use of knives. That, one he hears the censor crying in triumph, comes out. But, we may fancy the producer objecting, you can't take that out. Shakespeare wrote it, and it belongs in the play. I don't care who wrote it, the censor can answer. It can't be shown in Pennsylvania. And it couldn't. The little fat man with the blue pencil, and censors always become fat in time, can stand with both his feet upon the face of posterity. He can look fame in the eye and order her to quit trumpeting. He can line his waste-basket with the greatest notions which have stirred the mind of man. Like Joshua of old, he can command the sun and the moon to stand still until they have passed inspection. Cleanliness, it has been said, is next to godliness, but just behind comes the censor. Perhaps you may object that the censor would do none of the things mentioned. Perhaps he wouldn't, but the Pennsylvania State Board of Censors of Motion Pictures has been sufficiently alive to the possibilities of what it might want to do in re-editing the classics to give itself, specifically, supreme authority over the judgment and the work of dead masters. Under Section 22 of Standards of the Board, we find that the theme or story of a picture is adapted from a publication, whether classical or not, or that portions of a picture follow paintings or other illustrations is not a sufficient reason for the approval of a picture or portions of a picture. As a matter of fact, it is pretty hard to see just how Macbeth could possibly come to the screen in Pennsylvania. It might be banned on any one of several counts. For instance, prolonged fighting scenes will be shortened and brutal fights will be wholly disapproved. Nobody can question that the murder of Banquo was brutal. The use of profane and objectionable language in subtitles will be disapproved, which would handicap Macduff a good deal in laying on in his usual fashion. Gruesome and unduly distressing scenes will be disapproved. These include shooting, stabbing, profuse bleeding. If Shakespeare had only written with Pennsylvania in mind, Duncan might still be alive and Lady Macbeth sleeps as well as the next one. But at this point we recognize another gentleman who wishes to protest against any more attacks upon motion picture censorship being made which rest wholly on supposition. He has read standards of the board issued by the gentleman in Pennsylvania and he asserts that all the rules laid down are legitimate if interpreted with intelligence. 
It will not be necessary to put the whole list of rules in evidence, since there need be no dispute as to the propriety of such rules as prohibit moving pictures about white slavery and the drug traffic. Skipping these, we come to number five, which is as follows. Scenes showing the modus operandi of criminals which are suggestive and incite to evil action, such as murder, poisoning, housebreaking, safe robbery, pocket-picking, the lighting and throwing of bombs, the use of ether, chloroform, etc., to render men and women unconscious, binding and gagging, will be disapproved. Here I take the liberty of interrupting for a moment to protest that the board has framed this rule upon the seeming assumption that to see murders, robberies, and the rest is to wish at once to emulate the criminals. This theory is in need of proving. A good detective story is the traditional relaxation of all men high in power in times of stress, but it is not recorded of Roosevelt, Wilson, Secretary of State Hughes, Lord George, nor of any of the other noted devotees of criminal literature that he attempted to put into practice any of the things of which he read. But to get on with the story. Gruesome and unduly distressing scenes will be disapproved. These include shooting, stabbing, profuse bleeding, prolonged views of men dying and of corpses, lashing and whipping and other torture scenes, hangings, lynchings, electrocutions, surgical operations, and views of persons in delirium or insane. Here, of course, a great deal is left to the discretion of the censors. Just what is gruesome and unduly distressing? This, I fancy, must depend upon the state of the censor's digestion. To a vegetarian censor, it might be nothing more than a close-up of a beefsteak dinner. To a man living in the city which supports the athletics and the Phillies, a mere flash of a baseball game might be construed as gruesome and unduly distressing. This is another of the rules which puts Shakespeare in his place, sweeping out as it does both Lear and Ophelia, and possibly Hamlet. Was Hamlet mad? The Pennsylvania censors will have to take that question up in a serious way sooner or later. Studio and other scenes in which the human form is shown in the nude or the body is unduly exposed will be disapproved. This fails to state whether the prohibition includes the reproduction of statues shown publicly and familiar to all comers in our museums. Prohibition number eight, which deals with eugenics, birth control, and similar subjects, may be passed without comment as it refers rather to news than to feature pictures. Prohibition number nine covers a wide field. Stories or scenes holding up to ridicule and reproach races, classes, or other social groups as well as the irreverent and sacrilegious treatment of religious bodies or other things held to be sacred, will be disapproved. Here we have still another rule which might be invoked against Hamlet's coming to the screen, since the chance remark, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, might logically be held to be offensive to Scandinavians. The Merchant of Venice, of course, would have no chance, not only as anti-Semitic propaganda, but because it holds up moneylenders, a well-known social group, to ridicule. Number 10 briefly forbids pictures which deal with counterfeiting, seemingly under the impression that if this particular crime is never mentioned, the members of the underworld may possibly forget its existence. In number 11, there is the direct prohibition of scenes showing men and women living together without marriage. Here the greatest difficulty will fall upon those film manufacturers who deal in travel pictures. No exhibitor is safe in flashing upon a screen the picture of a cannibal man and woman and several little cannibals in front of their hut without first ascertaining from the cameraman that he went inside and inspected the wedding certificate. 
Number 13 forbids the use of profane and objectionable language, which we shall find out later has been construed to include the simple hell. Under 15, we find this ruling. Views of incendiarism, burning, wrecking, and the destruction of property, which may put light action into the minds of those of evil instincts, or may degrade the morals of the young, will be disapproved. In other words, Nero may fiddle to his heart's content, but he must do it without the inspiration of the burning of Rome. Curiously enough, throughout all the rules of censorship, there runs a continuous train of reasoning that the pictures must be adapted to the capacity and mentality of the lowest possible person who could wander into a picture house. The picture-loving public, in the minds of the censors, seem to be honeycombed with potential murderers, incendiaries, and counterfeiters. Rule number 16 discourages scenes of drunkenness and adds chivalrously, especially if women have a part in the scenes. Next, we come to a rule which would handicap vastly any attempt to reproduce Stevenson or any other lover of the picaresque upon the screen. Pictures which deal at length with gunplay, says rule 17, and the use of knives and are set in the underworld will be disapproved. Prolonged fighting scenes will be shortened, and brutal fights will be wholly disapproved. What, we wonder, would the censors do with a picture about Thermopylae? Would they, we wonder, command that resistance be shortened if the picture was to escape the ban? The Alamo was another fight which dragged on unduly, and Grant was guilty of great disrespect in his famous, If It Takes All Summer, not to mention the impudent incitement toward the prolongation of a fight in Lawrence's Don't Give Up the Ship. Number 19 suggests difficulties in its ban on sensual kissing and lovemaking scenes. Naturally, the question arises, at just what point does a kiss become sensual? Here the censors, to their credit, have been clear and definite in their ruling. They have decided that a kiss remains chaste for ten feet. If held upon the screen for as much as an inch above this limit, it changes character and becomes sensual. Here, at any rate, morality has been measured with an exactitude which is rare. Number 20 is puzzling. It begins liberally enough with the announcement that views of women smoking will not be disapproved as such, but then adds belatedly that this ruling does not apply if their manner of smoking is suggestive. Suggestive of what, I wonder? Perhaps the censors mean that it is all right for women to smoke in moving pictures if only they don't inhale. But it would have been much more simple to say just that. Number 22 is the famous proclamation that the classics, as well as other themes, must meet Pennsylvania requirements, and in 23 we have a fine general rule which covers almost anything a censor may want to do. Themes or incidents in picture stories, it reads, which are designed to inflame the mind to improper adventures or to establish false standards of conduct, coming under the foregoing classes or of any other kinds, will be disapproved. Pictures will be judged as a whole with a view to their final total effect. Those portraying evil in any form which may be easily remembered or emulated will be disapproved. Perhaps there are still some who remain unconvinced as to the excesses of censorship. The argument may be advanced that nothing is wrong with the rules mentioned if only they are enforced with discretion and intelligence. In answer to this plea, the best thing to do would be to consider a few of the eliminations in definite pictures which were required by the Pennsylvania Board and by the one in Ohio which operates under a somewhat similar set of regulations. 
an industrial play called The Whistle, was abandoned in its entirety in Pennsylvania under the following rule. Disapproved under Section 6 of the Act of 1915. Symbolism of the title raises class antagonism and hatred, and throughout subtitles, scenes, and incidents have the same effect. But most astounding of all was the final observation. Child labor and factory laws of this state would make incidents shown impossible. In other words, if a thing did not happen in Pennsylvania, it is assumed not to have happened at all. It is entirely possible that the next producer who brings an Indian picture to the censors may be asked to eliminate the elephants on the ground that there aren't any in this state. The same state ordered out of Officer Cupid, a comedy, a scene in which one of the chief comedians was seen robbing a safe, presumably under the sanction against showing crime upon the stage. Most troublesome of all were the changes ordered into the screen version of Augustus Thomas's well-known play, The Witching Hour. It may be remembered that the villain of this piece was an assistant district attorney in the state of Kentucky, but Pennsylvania would not have him so. It is difficult to find any specific justification for this attitude in the published standards of the state unless we assume that a district attorney was classified as belonging to the group Other Things Held to be Sacred which were not to be treated lightly. The first ruling of the censors in regard to the witching hour ran, Real One, eliminate subtitle, Frank Hardmuth, assistant district attorney, and substitute, Frank Hardmuth, a prosperous attorney. Next came, Real Two, eliminate subtitle, I can give her the best, money, position, and as far as character, I am district attorney now, and before you know it, I will be the governor and substitute, I can give her the best, money, position, and as far as character, I am now a prosperous attorney, and before you know it, I will be running for governor. And again, eliminate subtitles. Exactly, but you have taken an oath to stand by this city. And substitute, exactly, but you have taken an oath to stand by the law. This curious complex that even assistant district attorneys should be above suspicion ran through the entire film. Simpler was the change of the famous curtain line, which was familiar to all theater-goers of New York ten or twelve seasons ago, when The Witching Hour was one of the hits of the season. It may be remembered that at the end of the third act, Frank Hardmuth, then a district attorney and not yet reduced to a prosperous attorney, ran into the library of the hero to kill him. The hero's name we have forgotten, but he was a professional gambler of a high type who later turned hypnotist. Hardmuth thrust the pistol into his stomach, and we can still see the picture and hear the line as John Mason turned and said, You can't shoot that gun. And then after a long pause, You can't even hold it. Hardmuth, played by George Nash, staggered back and exclaimed just before the curtain came down, I'd like to know how in hell you did that to me. It can hardly have been equally effective in moving pictures, after the censor made the caption read, I'd like to know how you did that to me." The original version fell under the ban against profanity. In Ohio, a more recent picture called The Gilded Lily had not a little trouble. Here the Board of Censors curtly ordered, first reel, cut out girl smoking cigarette which he takes from man. Seemingly they did not even stop to consider whether or not she smoked it suggestively. And again in the third reel came the order. Cut out all scenes of girls smoking cigarettes at table. Most curious of all was the order, cut out verse with words, 
I'm a little prairie flower growing wilder every hour. William von Moody's The Faith Healer was considered a singularly dignified and moving play in its dramatic form, but the picture ran into difficulties, as usual, in Pennsylvania. Eliminate subtitle, came the order. Your power is not gone because you love, but because your love has fallen on one unworthy. As this is a fair statement of the idea upon which Mr. Moody built his play, it cannot be said that anything which the moving picture producers brought in was responsible. Throughout the rest of the world one may thumb his nose as a gesture of scorn and contempt, but in Pennsylvania this becomes a public menace not to be tolerated. Real, too, we find in the records of the Board of Censors, eliminate view of man thumbing his nose at lion. As a matter of fact, no rule of censorship of any sort may be framed so wisely that by and by some circumstance will not arise under which it may be turned to an absurd use. Any censors must have rules. No man can continue to make decisions all day long. He must eventually fall back upon the bulwark of printed instructions. I observed an instance of this sort during the war. A rule was passed forbidding the mention of any arrivals from America and France. An American captain, who had brought his wife to France, ran into this regulation when he attempted to cable home to his parents the news that he had become the proud parent of a son. Charles Jr. arrived today, weighed eight pounds, everything fine, he wrote on the cable bank, only to have it turned back to him with the information, we're not allowed to pass any messages about arrivals. It is almost as difficult for babies to arrive in motion picture stories. Any suggestion which would tend to weaken the faith of anyone in storks or cabbage leaves is generally frowned upon. For a time, picture producers felt that they had discovered a safe device which would inform adults and create no impression in the minds of younger patrons, and pictures were filled with mothers knitting baby clothes. This has now been ruled out as quite too shocking. Eliminate scene showing Bobby holding up baby sock, the Pennsylvania body is ruled, and scene showing Bobby standing with wife kissing baby sock. In fact, there is nothing at all to be done except to make all screen babies so many topsies who never were born at all. Even such a simple sentence as, and Julia Duan faced the most sacred duties of a woman's life alone, was barred. Like poor Julia Duan, the moving picture producers have one problem which they must face alone. They are confronted with difficulties unknown to the publisher of books and the producer of plays. The movie man must frame a story which will interest grown-ups and at the same time contain nothing which will disturb the innocence of the youngest child in the audience. At any rate, that is the task to which he is held by most censorship boards. The publisher of a novel knows that there are certain things which he may not permit to reach print without being liable to prosecution, but at the same time he knows that he is perfectly safe in allowing many things in his book which are not suitable for a four-year-old child. There is no prospect that the four-year-old child will read it. Just so, when a manager undertakes a production of Ibsen's Ghosts, it never enters into his head just what its effect will be on little boys of three. But these same youngsters will be at the picture house, and the standards of what is suitable for them must be standards of all the others. There should, of course, be some way of grading movie houses. There should be theaters for children under 14, others with subjects suitable for spectators from 14 to 60, and then small, select theaters for those more than 60 in which caution might be thrown to the winds. 
Another of the difficulties of the unfortunate movie picture producer is the fact that censorship bodies in various parts of the country have a faculty of seldom hitting on the same thing as objectionable. There is, of course, a national association of the motion pictures industry which maintains its own censorship through 92% of all the pictures exhibited in America are passed. But in addition to that, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Kansas and Maryland have state censorship boards and there are numerous local bodies as well. Cecil B. DeMille complained, shortly after his version of Geraldine Farrar and Carmen was launched, that at that time there were approximately 35 censorship organizations in the United States. These included various state and municipal boards. Every one of these 30-odd organizations censored Carmen. No two boards censored the same thing. In other words, what was morally acceptable to New York was highly immoral in Pennsylvania. What Pennsylvania might see with impunity was considered dangerous to the citizens of an adjoining state. Of course, the question at issue is whether the potential immoral picture shall first be shown at the producer's or the exhibitor's risk, or whether censorship shall come first before there has been any public showing. The contention is made by some of the moving picture people that they should have the same freedom given to people who deal in print to publish first and take the consequences later if any statute has been violated. The right to free speech, in fact, has been invoked in favor of the motion picture as a medium of expression. This view had the support of the late Mayor Gaynor, an excellent jurist, but apparently it is not the view held by various state courts which have passed upon the constitutionality of censorship laws. When the alderman of New York City passed an ordinance providing for the censorship of movies, Mayor Gaynor wrote, if this ordinance is legal, then a similar ordinance in respect of the newspapers and the theaters generally would be legal. Once revive the censorship and there is no telling how far we may carry it. No matter what the law, the real basis of censorship is the public itself. Persons who feel that tighter lines of censorship must be drawn and new bodies established go on the theory that there is a great demand for the salacious moving picture show. But there is no continuing appeal in dirt in the theater. It does not permanently sell the biggest of the magazines or the newspapers. And naturally, it is not a paying commodity to the moving picture men. The best that the censor can do is to guess what will be offensive to the general public. The general public can be much more accurate in its reactions. It knows. And it is prepared to step away from the dirty show in droves. End of chapter 41